When the seizure occurs, it's like a sudden burst of electricity going through the brain. In some cases, it can be localized in, in one place, but in other cases, it can really spread throughout the whole brain. That's like an electrical storm. You can picture it like that in the brain. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. Epilepsy is the most common serious brain disorder worldwide, and nearly 250,000 people are living with the condition in Australia. Epilepsy impacts people of all ages, but is most frequently diagnosed in early childhood, adolescence, and people over 65 years of age. Queensland Brain Institute researcher Dr Nella Jurisic is diving down to the molecular level of the brain to understand what's happening during the onset of epilepsy, what functions are being impacted and what new avenues of therapeutics we could explore. Dr Jurisic, welcome to A Grey Matter. Thank you. Epilepsy is a debilitating condition which can really impact a person's quality of life. How does it begin? What are the triggers to its development? Epilepsy can be caused by several different reasons, and many of them fall under trauma to the brain. That's when a person has a stroke, for example, or a fall can cause it. Also infection to the brain. This will change the circuitry in the brain. But when it happens in kids or adolescents, that's often because there are genetic causes to epilepsy, and they can be, they can be there and pass unnoticed for a long time. And then at some point, they will surface up. In some cases, the trigger can be, for example, a fever. The higher temperature can change how our brain functions. And if the function is not perfect, then it can manifest when a person has a fever. But I'm interested in genetic factors that cause epilepsy. And I think that is important because it is something that we cannot control. Um, Sometimes genes that make people vulnerable are passed from parents, but oftentimes it just happens that while the babies are growing, some changes happen and it's not parents' fault or anybody's fault. It's just the nature. Uh, It's the nature that leads us to evolution and makes us better, but it's the same nature can create problems and epilepsy can be seen as one of those problems. You know, in our brain, there are cells that makes us aware of everything that's happening around us that help us communicate to other people and learn. Those are called excitatory neurons or excitatory cells. And they're also called principal cells because they affect all other aspects of life and makes us who we are. For example, if you get startled, your whole body gets alert in a split second, right? And that's driven often, that's excitation of the brain that's at work. But then we also have a moment after that when we just go and we calm down. That's driven by inhibitory neurons. And it's this balance between excitation and inhibition that when it's lost, people start to get epilepsy. And going back to causes of it. So for example, when one gets hit in the head, they can lose these inhibitory cells. And then there's not enough inhibition in the brain to control the excitation, which is what would lead to epilepsy. But coming back to genetic causes that I'm actually interested in, sometimes genes can be passed from parents and then they can manifest in a child while in a parent they were not so much obvious. But 
In many cases, we have something that's called de novo mutations or de novo genes that are involved. And this is when we just get changes in the genes as the cells divide. And the same changes sort of lead to evolution and they they made us who we are now. But in some cases, things can go wrong and then they can cause disease such as epilepsy. Most people would probably recognise epilepsy when someone has a seizure, but what is happening in the brain when these seizures occur? So as I was talking about that lack of balance between excitation and inhibition, when the seizure occurs, that's like a sudden burst of electricity going through the brain. In some cases, it can be localised in in one place, but in other cases, it can really spread throughout the whole brain. That's like an electrical storm. You can picture it like that in the brain. And because our brain has so many functions and it controls basically everything in our body or almost everything in our body, then the seizure can take many different forms and it can affect many of our behavior. Not only that we can see uncontrolled body movements, but also the person coming out of the seizure can lose awareness, feel a bit lost, their mood changes, uh, many other things. And that's just because our brain is really controlling so much. How does the seizure stop? Does it require intervention? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes people can get medications that work acutely. Not everything is known about how the seizure stops. And really, even less is known about that period that leads towards the seizure. We can detect abnormal brain activity using EEG, for example. And we can also detect that there are changes in electrical activity of the brain that are leading up to the seizure stage. But we don't quite know what the changes are. And that's one of the motivations for the research that I do. Because if we would understand what are the changes that lead to having a seizure, then we would be able to stop having seizure altogether. And I think that would be great. So diagnosis of the condition is quite prevalent in children and at the adolescent stage. Why is that? Is there something in the developing brain that makes it susceptible to these types of conditions perhaps? Yes, of course. Especially for genetic epilepsies, there are factors that are very important. Our brain, as it's growing, it's changing the whole time. New cells are dividing and new circuits are made. And we know that because we know how a three-year-old behaves compared to 10-year-olds, right? And you can you can just there, you can say that the 10-year-old would have a lot more circuits made and a lot more interaction between brain cells, right? But When the circuits are not able to be made properly, for example, because we have dividing cells, but then these cells die, or the connections between cells are not established properly, they may be weak, then we can start to see changes in behavior of the kids, and then these changes can then lead to epilepsy if there are genetic causes, for example. I will mostly focus on genetic causes because trauma is something that in a lot of ways we can prevent. But genetic causes are something that kids are born with. And a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, they're helpless. So I think those are much harder to to tackle, but also more important to tackle because these are our kids, right? Um, Something that we in Queensland Brain Institute know is that except for these circuits being formed, there are proteins in the brain that are not the same for a three-year-old Uh, the levels of those proteins are not the same in young children and in adolescents, for example. And if some of these proteins whose levels are changing is malfunctioning, 
so it's, it doesn't have a proper shape or a proper function. Then if it's less expressed when the child is small, then its malfunction will manifest less. But if it's expressed more, then obviously we will see the, the drawbacks of its malfunction more. And this is why in some kids epilepsy is diagnosed very early and in others it's diagnosed later as the protein levels may be rising. Is it uncommon to have an epilepsy diagnosis in someone who's perhaps in their 20s or 30s where it's never actually presented before? Severe epilepsies are diagnosed very early in life. But there are forms that are not very severe and that kids can grow out of. And I think a lot of the epilepsies are really detected early in life, less in the 20s. And then sometimes um, some people get diagnosed with epilepsy in their 50s or 40s, but often these are not caused by genetic reasons. There can be chemical, there can be alcohol abuse, for example, drug abuse. So uh, many factors that cause changes in the brain circuitry and, and protein expression in the brain. And what are some of the complications or consequences for people who are diagnosed with epilepsy above the age of 65, for example? So I have to say that as we, as we live longer and longer, chances for changes in the brain caused by external factors like trauma, stroke, and then head injury are more. Also, alcohol abuse is quite important one. So they're more, and often some of those insults can pass unnoticed. So over time, they can progress and then lead to neuronal death, for example, which can cause that disbalance between excitation and inhibition in the brain and manifest as epilepsy in older age. So what exactly drives you to do this research into epilepsy? So I've been fascinated by how our brain works and how intricate the connections are and and just communication between cells. There is a a personal motivation. Uh, A very good friend of mine, her brother, is diagnosed with epilepsy as a child. He's an exceptionally intelligent person. However, he does not live the life that you and I live. He has constraints that we do not have. And he's been through surgeries and medications that didn't work. And and this is the problem that really we have 30% of people with epilepsy do not respond to medications. And this just tells us that we really don't know enough about the disease. That's a large percentage, right? So what I would like is to uncover basic principles of cellular function and loss of that function that happens in epilepsy so that we know more and then we can develop methods to conquer the disease, basically. Now, your search for answers has taken you all the way down to the molecular level. I'm wondering how has technology helped you on your journey for discovery? (laughs) Yeah, it did help a lot. I, I was fascinated by how random molecular interactions may be looking at the a, at a first sight, but how they're actually not random. Connections between cells, and we have millions and millions of them in the brain, they all happen in these tiny places called synapses. They're about 10 times smaller than a millimeter. So pretty small, right? But they regulate our memory. They regulate 
what we observe around us. They regulate how we behave physically. All are when we watch somebody else's face, all that mimicry is regulated but by these little places. And there's a lot going on there. There's a thousand of proteins that interact with each other and they all need to find a way to find the right one, create a complex and then do something like open little pores through which electricity is going through. And so it's a it's a complex machinery that I thought would be great to actually see by eye. And that's what technology allowed me to really follow these single molecules and see what they do in real time. And I'm able to do that with a fairly high precision, I'll say 10 to 20 nanometers, but a nanometer is one millionth part of a millimeter, right? So that's pretty, (laughs) pretty good. Almost, so we are down almost to the size of one of those proteins. And is that through advanced microscopy or is there something else that's helping in terms of the technology there? So yes, it is advanced microscopy. It is also advanced chemistry methods and physics. And I have to say, I've actually studied physics at McGill University and then did my PhD in biophysics. But then my research questions have brought me here into Queensland Brain Institute where I basically work as a biologist. (laughs) This is just to say that if you have a dream and you want to pursue it, just go for it. Don't worry about constraints. You'll get there. And be open to the path, whichever way it's going. Yes, exactly. Very good advice. So your latest findings uncover the differences between moderate and severe genetic epilepsy. Can you tell us a bit more about those discoveries? So what I've discovered is that uh, molecular architecture of a synapse is very different in more benign types of epilepsy compared to severe types. In severe types, we also have intellectual disability in kids. For example, they're not able to learn properly and often they're not able to function properly. And I can see that these differences at the level of synapses. I think this is This knowledge is actually very important because it tells us what we need to target. In more benign types, medications such as benzodiazepine class of medications or other types of medications that that help GABA receptors work more. So GABA receptors are little protein complexes that let the current go through at synapses. Those medications actually work and they restore the function of synapse. So this tells us that the more benign ones are also treatable, and we now know why. The architecture of synapse in more severe cases is such that you can't use these drugs anymore. They are not enough. We need to target other proteins to restore the expression level of other proteins, and then perhaps on top use drugs that enhance how GABA receptors work. So what exactly is going on in terms of the more severe types of epilepsy? In more severe cases, the synapses are so dysfunctional that the network doesn't get formed. So it doesn't, you, you don't get enough connections uh, between. And one of the reasons also why you don't get enough connections is because these proteins that don't get to the surface, they end up being depoted in a cell, you know, in some of the cell organelles. But because they accumulate there a lot, that organelle starts being under stress, can't resolve it, and then the cell dies. So it's two levels. One is lack of connections between synapses, but then also lack of connections because the whole cell dies. 
So how do you model the brain for your research? Now, I have heard of organoids before. Could you tell us what they are exactly and how they help your research? So unfortunately, well, we can get a, a blood sample from a person, but we can't really get a sample of the brain. We don't do that routinely and, and for obvious reasons, right? And this is why we use model organisms. They can be mice, rats, flies, worms. Uh, biology has different common model organisms on which we first test how medications work or we test mechanisms that lead to a certain disease. But then there is an obvious difference between a model organism such as a rat and, and a mouse and a human, right? There's a set of genes that is different in humans. It's it's really a small percentage, <laughs> but it's an important percentage. And I think it would be great if we would be able to really have human tissue and human cells on which we would be able to try our drugs or test the mechanisms that we've seen in model animals, but without really having any kind of invasive procedure to get that. And so from blood samples, we can get some a type of cells that are called stem cells. And then from them, we can develop them into neurons and grow them in a way that they form a little round bunches of cells. They are quite small. They are on the order of millimeter or can grow to a few millimeters. But they are the closest that we have in terms of structure to the brain. Obviously, it's in all in the laboratory, but it's closest that we have to the brain. And then we can measure electrical activity. We can look at connections between neuronal cells. And we can look at the differences between organoids derived from healthy people and those derived from people with diseases such as epilepsy. Um, so we are lucky that we have someone at IMBN at the UQ, Ernst Vogeltank. He has a really nice facility with where he's able to grow organoids. Uh, and so this is in col collaboration with him. And it's a, I, I think it's a very promising approach. Now, you've already talked about the synapse. Uh, obviously, it's a major communication hub between the brain cells. Could your research offer insights into other brain disorders or dysfunctions like potentially mental health problems? Absolutely. The receptors that I am focused on are targets to many substances. Anxiety medications, obviously depression also, they're also involved in depression, they're involved in autism. There are many, many disorders that they're also targets of alcohol, so addiction disorders. There are, there are really many diseases that they're involved in, and this is because there are major inhibitory neuroreceptors in the brain. So, yes. I'm wondering if there's a chance we could discover something new by looking at a brain before the onset of epilepsy. Actually, this is something that we were looking into and we have some really exciting results. We are able to grow neurons that express these proteins that are found in people with epilepsy. And then we can compare how they function compared to healthy neurons. We enhance excitatory activity of the cells in these neuronal cultures and then looked at what's happening with the inhibition. And one would assume that if ex excitation increases, then the inhibition will increase try trying to catch up and calm down the rest of the cells. And this is what happens in healthy cells. But to our surprise, in those expressing proteins that are involved in epilepsy, the opposite happens. And so you can imagine that you would have a cell where inhibition is not working. But when excitation is pronounced, oh, it's, then it's working even worse. 
And we think that this is something that is, it may be a trigger for a seizure to happen because you have this even worse performance of inhibitory neurons. We talked earlier about medication and the fact that I think it was 30% of people do not respond to medication, which is, I think, extremely high. Obviously, the treatment of epilepsy does revolve heavily around medication and therapeutics, but what happens when people don't respond to that medication? How do you end up treating them? And is there something in the brain that potentially blocks the therapeutic? There are several factors. One is that often we don't really know what causes epilepsy, especially if it's genetic. We don't know which protein is not functioning. And so then it becomes hard to decide which drug to apply because the drug should be targeting that protein that's not functioning. And that can be circumvent if we take a blood sample and then we analyze genetically what goes wrong in that patient. Then we can pull a set of drugs that we think would act on these particular proteins. This approach works to some extent, but it works quite well actually in in case when uh, epilepsies are not severe, genetic epilepsies that are not severe. In severe genetic epilepsies, then there's a lot more factors that are involved. One problem is that a lot of proteins get retained in some cellular compartments and that causes stress in a cell and then cells die. So if we would be able to push these proteins out, perhaps, then that would really help. And we tested a drug that is able to do that. It's a drug that's already FDA approved, but it has never been used for epilepsy. So this is one direction that our research is now going, trying to see if that drug would help in a number of cases of genetic epilepsy and to also pinpoint for which case it's useful and for which is not. And then GABA receptors interact with many proteins, and some of those help them work better. And I think that if there's less GABA receptors at the surface, for example, because they're not uh, functioning properly, but then we're able to enhance their work with these other proteins that are interacting with them and make synapses stronger, inhibitory synapses stronger, then that would also help. So these are some directions that we are trying to take. Another one is that benzodiazepine class of drugs, for example, can cause addiction. And they are uh, listed as drugs of abuse. This is why they're given acutely, but not as a long-term treatment. And I think understanding why that addiction happens, what are the changes on cellular level, would really help so that we potentially can use them more as a long-term treatment. So that's another direction that my lab is taking. And beyond that, what's next for your research and, I guess, epilepsy research as a whole? I would love to understand all the changes that happen in a cell and then take that to the clinic because essentially that's the purpose. This is why we are doing this. And we are making progress that I think is very exciting. And we are talking to the doctors. At one point, there will be more involvement of doctors in clinics so that we can tailor our therapeutics approaches together. But really, my ultimate goal is out of all this knowledge to come up with a new treatment that may target common mechanisms in cells, so mechanisms that are common for many types of genetic epilepsies, so that we can bring kids to the normal level of functioning and normal happy lives. 
And just finally, I'm wondering, just on maybe a more personal note, when did you know that you wanted to work in research that focused on the brain? Is this something that had been a burning desire in you even as a young child? Or when did the desire to really hone in on this research hit you? I think many people are fascinated by how our brain works, and I was fascinated too. But I have always been trying to be as precise as possible and go into details as much as possible. And I started with one protein, build up to a complex, and then build up to a complex of complexes, which are synapses. In a way, for me, this was natural and it was one scientific question leading to another and really trying to understand how we and the nature around us works, how we communicate with the nature around us and what goes wrong or how things manifest when that communication goes wrong. So this is what led for me to study epilepsy. Another one I, I want to say really is that, you know, a majority of our neuronal cells are principal cells, so they're excitatory. And then only 20 to 30% are inhibitory. Uh, but those inhibitory ones really orchestrate so much in the brain and they regulate the excitatory cells so that if you lose one inhibitory cell, that has much larger impact than if you lost one excitatory cell. And I was fascinated by that. So, yeah, that, that led me to where I am now. Sounds like a bit of a, a battle within the brain, really, given those odds. Not <laughs> it's just a, a bit worrying, really. Nella, it has been just a delight to speak to you and hear about your research and the important work that you're doing. I very much appreciate the time you've taken to come along today. Thank you. It was very nice talking to you. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do here at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Rebecca Archer and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.